How can you, Christian, transform society? How can you transform society? Now, to some of you guys, when you hear those words, your mind is already launched into the, inter- uh, the internal mind map of where you need to go, what kinds of careers you need to be in, in order to leave a lasting mark for God here on this earth. With our American mindset, we think, you know, if I am to be used of God to transform society, I need a career of position. I need a career of influence in certain institutions, whether it be, you know, think of whatever dream you have of of transforming society, whether it be institutions of sports, politics, or the arts, you know, with this Once again, very much American mentality. We think, go west, young man, divide and conquer. And while some elements of this thinking can be good, the Bible actually doesn't frame the discussion like that. The Bible doesn't frame the discussion like that. The Bible does, though, frame the discussion of societal transformation in terms of Christian character and conduct. Christian character and conduct lived not, uh, not, not lived out primarily in the institutions of society, but before individuals in society. Again, I'm not saying that pursuing change in certain institutions is bad, and I pray, you know, once again, that some, I know that some of this thinking is good, and I pray that we as a congregation would think and strategize about what kind of institutions we might be able to get into by the grace of God, And so, therefore, make change, uh, whatever change God has planned for us. So I would pray that some of you guys, that the Lord would lay on your hearts to, you know, start a counseling ministry. Even though you might not make so much money here in the 626 area. I pray that some of you guys, you know, you guys would go on and start uh, crisis pregnancy centers here in this area to affect good and possibly lasting change. Uh, But... The Bible speaks of the discussion of societal transformation in very different ways. In ways I think that the vast majority of people in the world can understand. Because I mean, if we're going after institutions, you know what, we just wrote off a billion people or many billions of people who have no opportunity to even think about what kind of uh, careers they can have that affect change because they're just doing what their parents have done for, and their parents have done and their parents have done. Anyways, this is what our passage this morning addresses. So if you have your Bibles, please, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 to 25. Which can be found on page 1014. If you have your Bibles, turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 25. The big idea here is there is power to transform society through Christian conduct. There is power to transform society through Christian conduct. And once again, to be clear, we're not talking about institutional change. We're talking about individual change, the individuals uh, that you lived before. If you're taking notes, we look first at the mission. And then second, we look at the battlefront. So where we ought to carry out this mission. So first, the mission. Second, the battlefronts. Let's look first at the mission there in verses 11 to 12 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. I'll read that. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
You see the command there in terms of conduct? That's, what's he's, that's what he's highlighting there, verse 11. He says, abstain from sinful passions, those sinful passions that wage war against your soul, that bring you down, that destroy you. Logically, we see where Peter is going there in verse 12 as these two verses are tightly connected. It could be translated loosely, abstain from your sinful passions, keeping, I-N-G, keeping your conduct honorable. He says they're among the Gentiles. Interesting word that he chooses to use there, Gentiles. I mean, he's writing to a Gentile and Jewish church. If you're not familiar with the word Gentile, that means a non-Jew. So he's writing to the Jews and the non-Jews. And he's saying, abstain from the passions that wage war against your flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. So here he's using the spiritual language of the Old Testament. Those who don't fear God, we're just going to call them Gentiles, even though uh, ethnically they are Gentiles. And the spiritual language of the Old Testament of Israel, he's using that too for the church, their spiritual Israel. So we have the people of God, let's just call them Israel, the people of who reject Christ, that is the Gentiles in general. But here Peter continues the theme of holiness for the Christian that he brought up way back in chapter 1. Uh, if you look at, uh, let's just go ahead and look at two nine. you can see here that Peter reminds these Christians who felt exiled in their own land due to the persecution that they face, he encourages them, but you are a chosen race. Again, he's not identifying some particular ethnicity. He's saying, like us, we're multi-ethnic, but we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So the idea here is that God, you, he possesses people so that they might be holy like he is. They might be loving like he is or righteous like he is. This is very much what it means to be a Christian adopted into his family, displaying the characteristics of God the Father, representing the Father to the world. Or think of an ambassador of a king. We are ambassadors of the king to the world in our host nation. And we are to be about the business of God there. And what is the business of the church then? Once again, in verse 9, it says there, to proclaim that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So there it's the church proclaiming. That's the business here that God's people are to be about. We proclaim the excellencies of God's very virtues. His, just think about all of his virtues, the, his goodness, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, his faithfulness, his steadfastness. I mean, that's the purpose for why God is gathering us together as his people. We are to proclaim the beauties of God. Now, it would be natural to address the testimony of the church or the confession of the church. In fact, he's going to get there later on. He says, be ready to offer the reason for the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. But he addresses their pressing situation. Remember, they're being persecuted. They're suffering for their faith. Imagine this. And so he addresses the testimony of their conduct. He, he's going to address testimony of confession. But now he addresses their testimony of conduct. Conduct is huge for Peter. It's a big deal in Peter's letter. Speaking about it uh, in various verses, he refers to this conduct as a new way of living in Jesus Christ. So turn over to 115, right? He says there, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Then you look there in verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, he says, conduct yourselves. And then in verse 18, he says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways, that's futile conduct, same word there in Greek, inherited from your forefathers. He's there, he's encouraging them to live holily like God is himself. Uh, conduct is huge. 
So he says there, verse 12 of chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So conduct is big for Peter. It is living for Christ and living like Christ in a world that rejects Christ. That's the conduct here. That's the reason why he's focusing on this and why it's so big in his letters, because they were rejecting them. I mean, just imagine being in the Roman Empire and they had the emperor cult worship, right? So the people were called to worship the emperor and all sorts of different gods. But then the people of God had a different God, the one and only true God, the king of heaven. And so all of a sudden, if you are in a, if you're amongst the people who, who are being called to worship the emperor as supreme and worthy of your worship, and then you guys have a different king, well, all of a sudden you guys are suspect, right? You're a threat. Not only do they have different gods, but they had a different life. Uh, so not, so they were supposed to worship differently, but they're supposed to act differently. If you turn over to chapter four, you see here a little glimpse of what was going on. These Christians, once again, are suffering in all sorts of ways. They are being persecuted physically for the gospel, but they're also being mocked and whatnot here. They're being slandered. He says there in 4.3, for the time that is past suffices. He's talking about their old life. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, right? That's what, that's what the world around them was doing. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So I'm sure many of you guys know, if you were converted later on in life, maybe you were living in this kind of lifestyle of debauchery, of sinfulness. Uh, and then all of a sudden you withdraw and then your friends are like, dude, what's, what are you guys doing? Like, how come you don't hang with us anymore? How come you don't run with us anymore? And so all of a sudden it's all eyes on you guys because all of a sudden you're different. And then, whether for good reasons or, unfortunately, even some negative reasons, sometimes Christians might respond too harshly in terms of explaining the convictions they have. And and when we do that, we are wrong for that. Um, But sometimes people are just convicted of their sin, even even though there's nothing wrong that the Christian is doing necessarily. They're not being unnecessarily offensive, and that that the non-Christian is offended. They're, They're judged in their own lifestyle. That seems to be what's going on here. And so they slander the Christians. Some of you guys know what this is like. This is all eyes on you guys when you're, for example, your coworkers are getting hammered and they, and, and they turn to you to join in with them and you've got to turn them down again. Or around the water cooler, you know, they might be gossiping about the boss and you decide to leave the conversation again. All of a sudden you're suspect. Or maybe when they're gawking at girls and you tell them to change the conversation again, right? In in those moments, I'm sure you guys might know, I hope you know, uh, that it's all eyes on the Christian. But it can be so awkward, can't it? Being in that situation can be so awkward, especially since many of us tend to fear man, right? In high school, for example, when I'm with my non-Christian friends, I I I tell them that I am choosing to not sleep with my girlfriend. Right. And so I, you know, they look at me like I'm an alien or I work at 24 hour fitness. And every day the dudes would stand behind the treadmill, stand around and walk, uh, gawk at the girls who are running on the treadmills or whatever. And they ask me my opinion. I tell them, look, I'm not interested in having this conversation. 
Uh, you know, I have, and then, you know, I get into a whole bunch of other discussions. And then soon enough, you know what they're doing? They're not inviting me to parties. They're not inviting me to the coworkers' dinners, you know, uh, where everybody else is going. Same thing, you know, they're getting drunk. They tell me to join in, and I feel, you know, I just don't feel like it. These are the reasons why. And then they shake their head, and then soon enough, I'm distant from them. You guys ever find yourselves in those types of situations? Unfortunately, many people feel so insecure. You know, once again, we tend to fear man. We think about everything we could lose for the gospel. Once again, you know, we brought this up in in a number of weeks in a row. You know, we have our reputations to lose. We have our friends to lose. We have our, maybe the status that that we might lose. You know, if someone's going to fire us for being a Christian in the job. We got our relationships. Maybe we are even blacklisted. Uh, Friends, Peter knows what you're feeling. He knows what it's like to have all eyes on him as that little girl laid eyes on him at the crucifixion, saying, you were with Jesus, weren't you? He knows what it's like to fear man. If you look in uh, the New Testament, this is his thing, even though he seems to be so bold to want to, to, want to follow Jesus. And here there's this, here's this little girl exposing him for who he was. But where once Peter felt threatened by all eyes on him, here... Peter says that that, friends, is the perfect place to be. All eyes are on you. Now, how should we live? Having all eyes on the Christian because of the way you live is the perfect place to be. Peter has gone through this personal evolution. And it's awesome here that we get to read about it because it gives us hope. Right? We we come to realize that it is possible. Once you fear all eyes on you, now he embraces all eyes on him. Once he felt exposed by the little girl asking him if he was in, with Jesus to, to then you see Jesus reinstating this, this man fearer. Jesus calls him back into the ministry. And then after Jesus goes back up into heaven, Peter then preaches so boldly an effort to see the church built on the gospel. And he doesn't fear man in the book of Acts, right? He's willing to go to the death for the gospel. And in fact, he does. And all eyes are on him. You know why all eyes on the Christian is the perfect place to be? If you're feeling fear because all eyes are on you in the workplace or amongst your friends, friends, you know why it is a perfect place to be? It's because the confident Christian, that is the Christian confident in Christ, is no longer concerned about being exposed to be a Christian by man, but he's concerned with displaying Christ to man. It's a paradigm shift here. Once we are fearful of being exposed to be a Christian by man, now we can be concerned with displaying Christ to man. That's what Peter wants the church to be about. So when we're worried about everything there is to lose, you know, of course we're going to shut down. We're not going to display Christ. We're not going to live differently at all from the world. But when we are confident and excited and even obsessed about everything there is to gain in the gospel... Then we go ahead and live changed lives. And in our main in our passage here, in the next couple chapters, you see what can be gained through Christian conduct. You see what can be gained through Christian conduct. That is the salvation of sinners. This is how the Lord works. All eyes on you. It works where once they persecuted you and we feared. Now, if we are confident in Christ, people can persecute, but it works. Our Christian conduct works. 
to see them, by God's grace, perhaps, come to know Jesus Christ. Look there in verse 2, 12. You see here the purpose. It is so that, here's the purpose statement, so that, why should we abstain? Why should we keep our conduct good and honorable? It is so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is the return of Jesus Christ. They stand before God actually praising him. We see this is the major purpose of the Christian conduct. And once again, it is by God's good design. The Christian who is born again by the Holy Spirit's power is a projection for all of the world to see. So you can imagine, let's say our lives are like, you know, we're like the houses on the other, either side of the 60 freeway. And the 60 freeway is just the, the non-Christians going by, they're buzzing by. Well, every single individual Christian and the churches that gather together on Sundays, the Lord's Day, to preach the gospel, we are all, each and every single one of us, projections of God's glory for the world to see. Kind of like the Christmas lights that we see that we think are beautiful. God says here it actually works that way in His grace according to His plan to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now there, that's the proclamation, the verbal proclamation. But once again, there's also this testimony of conduct, which is what He's talking about. We display, we project His saving power, we project His goodness, His love, His mercy, His patience, His holiness, His righteousness. Paul states this similarly in Titus chapter 2. He says, by following, by living our lives in accordance with sound doctrine, we sort of put on the beauties of Jesus Christ. They, they're able to see it like it's like it's clothing for us. And then as we go about living our lives in the non-Christian world, they, they're able to see like, you're really strange, but hey, I kind of like that. I don't think I found, um, many of you guys know my testimony. Uh, so for a period of time, I was backslidden. Uh, doubting the sovereignty of God, and eventually I hung out with friends of friends who were in gangs, and, uh, you know, that's a rough crowd. And, um, you know, imagine hanging out with, with, with a bunch of rough men who have, you know, burns on their bodies and tattoos everywhere, uh, men who have gone to jail, etc., for doing all sorts of things. In my twisted understanding and judgment, uh, I thought their love for one another was very attractive. So anyways, I started hanging out with them. Um, once again, very backslidden. By God's grace, I didn't pursue a lot of the things they did, uh, so I don't have to seek you know, restitution with the government or the police or anything like that, by God's grace. Uh, but I remember hanging out with one of my friends. Uh, his name is Tiny. And, um, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, my other friends were kind of dogging me for any number of reasons, saying that I wasn't, like, you know, I wasn't a loyal homie. That's what they were saying. That's what they were accusing me for. Uh, and it was for some, some ridiculous reason. Then all of a sudden, Tiny, and this guy has tats everywhere. He's been to jail. His brother's doing life in prison. All of a sudden, he turns and sort of stops them and says, no, I know Jeremy loves me and Anne, his girlfriend at the time. Just out of nowhere. I never heard the brother use the word love, period. And then out of nowhere, he says, no, no, I know Jeremy loves me. And I, and I was super encouraged because at the time I was trying to evangelize him, right? In my twisted world, I thought their love was really attractive. But yet, and as I entered into their world and was hanging around with them and really felt like a family member, um, you know, I was trying to evangelize them. I was trying to take care of them, you know, just do normal things that Christians do. And, uh, you know, that was really encouraging. And then later on, he, there's another story, too, where uh, he was driving around in his Suburban, you know, 1990s, that's like the gangster car. And um, 
there's a whole bunch of other stuff in the trunk. Anyway, so we were driving around, and uh, he pulls out this shirt, and uh, he went shopping in downtown L.A., and, you know, he pulls out this shirt, and he was mocking me, and he pulled out this shirt, and he says, hey, Jeremy, I got you this present. He, he unrolls, and it says, God said it, uh, I believe it, uh, and therefore I should do it. And he was mocking me. He said, Here, here's, your, here's your T-shirt, and I was like, that was super encouraging. Why is that? Because, number one, he knows that I love him, and number two, he knows that I submit to a higher authority than myself. And I was thinking, dude, at that moment, I was wondering, like, you know, should I really be hanging out with these guys trying to evangelize, the, evangelize them? You know, we all have to exercise wisdom in terms of who we're spending time with and, you know, in what sort of venue should we be doing these things that are safe, etc. But at that moment, I was super encouraged because I knew the conduct was showing them something that they didn't know. And I knew that the conduct was biblical. Uh, that's how it's supposed to work here as we shine as projections to the non-Christian world. They see, now friends, they might not like it, but by God's grace, some of them will find it intriguing and be attracted to it. Here, friends, Peter wants suffering Christians who find themselves in some very difficult positions to recognize the power of a born-again life and to capitalize on it for the sake of Jesus Christ. He wants them to recognize the power of a born-again life and capitalize on it for the sake of Jesus Christ. So, friends, you realize that for you there is power in your born-again life? We know that our lives back up our words. Our lives are evidence of our belief. That's just simply what the Bible says. So if our lives don't show any fruit, there's reason to question whether or not we're really a Christian. But, friends, if you are truly born again, there is power in your born-again life. And Christ wants you to shine forth His righteousness, holiness, and saving power to your non-Christian friends and family. Friends, think about that as you go into your Christmas vacation family gatherings there. If you're a Christian, yes, you might be strange. You might be weird to the world. I mean, one brother was telling me about how he started dating his girlfriend, and they just decided not to kiss. And they're going around telling, you know, other people including her parents, that this is what they're trying to do. They're just trying to not kiss because they knew that if they would, that their desires for sex would be so powerful and they knew from their past that they might not be able to or they might give in to temptation. So they just said, okay, let's just steer clear. Let's just stay far away from the cliff. And they knew, as the Bible says, it's dangerous to awaken love too early. So in a culture that thinks it's normal for you to test drive marriage by living together or even practicing sex as if you were a married couple before actually committing, right, a couple, any couple who says we're not going to kiss is really strange. That's bizarre. It is bizarre to stay away from pornography because you want to love women or men in a different way. You want to love them as a Christian because you view them not as objects to fulfill your own glory, but to love them as women and men made in the image of God designed to display his glory to the world. That's bizarre. It is bizarre to stay away from gossip that seeks to tear down. And then as a Christian, instead, use your tongue for the building up and the edification of other people. It is strange to want to get back to work after break time because you are a Christian and you want to do your employer good. You want to seek to have them profit, to prosper. You want your bosses good. So when others are grumbling and complaining about the fact that they have to work, the Christian is able to enter work and say, yes, I want to bless you. And we're going to see next week, even if they are unjust. 
your holy life, friends, is testifying power to your holy Christ. And there is no reason to be fearful or embarrassed about the Spirit's work of holiness in your life. There's not no reason to be embarrassed for it one moment. It is evidence that God's Spirit is working in you to transform you more into the image of your Son. So let us, therefore, capitalize on every opportunity to explain uh, why we do what we do. So we are living. Let us now come alongside and explain to our friends and family why it is that we choose to do what we do. Friends, this also includes explaining why we no longer do what we once did. Unfortunately, many of us feel a bit shamed, ashamed about talking about the things that we once did. But even in speaking of that, in those things with wisdom, with caution in certain uh, in certain settings, friends, if we speak about the darkness that we were drawn out of, it makes the light all the more beautiful, does it not? And so this is what uh, Peter is reminding us. Uh, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a follower of Jesus, I hope you're able to look at your friend and even say, yeah, this guy, this dude is weird at times. I hope you're able to see that this is not their own doing. It's not a simple you know, morality checklist, and that's what we're ascribing to. No, we agree that the Spirit of God is working in us to transform our very lives through the power of the gospel. So ultimately, it is the gospel that brings about this change that we so feel compelled to live out in front of you guys. A holy life. So where the problem here, or sorry, the, 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 our solution is not a simple checklist of morality. Our solution that brings about salvation is God's Spirit working inside of us. I mean, if it were up to us, I mean, where, what good could, could come about that, could bring that about? Uh, we know that from the Bible, it is our hearts that have brought us away. It's our hearts that have sinned against God, our only Creator. And therefore, because of that, we have earned for ourselves just judgment in hell because we have committed treason against the only King. That's what we get ourselves into. So God in all of his love comes alongside and says, let me change you. I will change you through the power of the spirit. And so he puts a spirit inside of us to change us so that we might love Jesus Christ and be reconciled to our creator. All, all of that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We come to see Jesus Christ as the Lord and savior who died on the cross for our sins. So where we should have died, no, Christ comes along and dies for us. He takes upon himself our sins and the wrath that we deserved in order that God might gather for himself a possession, a holy people to sing his praises, his goodness and his love. So thank God that in the gospel, he changes lives. He cleans up our own mess all by his love, his grace and his mercy. Friends, this change can be for you, too, if you turn from your sins and believe on him. That's where this change comes about. If you want to talk to me about my life, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. If you want to talk to about your life, uh, the lives of those who have brought you, ask them, what makes you different? Why do you believe in this Jesus? Why, do you, why, why is it that you used to do all of these sinful things, but now actually you want to do all these holy things? What's the reason for those things, and what does Jesus Christ have to do about that? Friends, and ask your friends about that. We'd be happy to talk to you about that. Because for us, that's just one way to proclaim His excellencies. The fact that He has the power to change. Well, friends, this is the mission. To abstain from the passions of our flesh. Keeping our conduct in the world honorable. And the goal here is to see others one to Jesus Christ. 
You see here, this is actually what drives this whole entire passage. You have the mission and then the reason. So if you look down, if you look there at 13, verse 13 to 17, as we're going to get to, he talks about our lives living in front of the government. In verses 18 to 25, he talks about the Christian slave underneath the master. You look there at verse uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 1 to 10, he talks about, or sorry, 1 to 7, he talks about the Christian wife who's married to a non-Christian husband. He talks about the husband living with his wife there. Uh, all of these things, they are explanations of what it looks like for us to abstain from the flesh, keep our conduct among the Gentiles honorable in these different locations or these different battlefronts. And all of it is to see people one and to see the Lord's name vindicated. You look there at 3 verse 1. He says there, once again, he has his goal of salvation. Likewise, wives, he's thinking Christian wives, married to non-Christian husbands, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Once again, that's a goal of salvation, right? And then he also has in mind the vindication of God's name. You look there in 2.15. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You look over there at uh, 3.16, same thing, vindication of God's name. Having a good conscience, behave in such a way where you have a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So you have the mission, live a holy life. You have the goal to see people one for Christ and the vindication of his name. So that's point number one. Let's look now at point number two, where we are to carry out our mission, the battlefronts. Now, this section actually goes all the way from 2.13 to 4.11. Uh, and here he's addressing the church in this sort of household code. That's what it's called, a household code. Paul, another, another New Testament author, he does this too, encouraging Christians where they are as, let's say, husbands or wives or masters or slaves. In our passage, he first addresses Christians under government. Christians under government. This is the battlefront that we focus on today. Next week, we move to uh, Christian slaves under masters. But today, we focus on Christians under government rule. Look at there, 13 to 17. He says there, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see, once again, the conduct that we are called to, verses 13 to then 15, 13 and 15. He says there, be subject to every human institution. It's translated here in the ESV. In verse 15, he says, doing good. So there you have the conduct that we are called to. Now, maybe Peter here is addressing uh, the emperor as supreme first because the, maybe the tensions were now rising up where the church needed, uh, the church needed some encouragement. We know that uh, this letter was written in the early 60s, and in the mid-60s, persecution would really ramp up, state-sponsored persecution, and many Christians would be killed, martyred. And so perhaps here the persecution was still... Uh, it was picking up, and it was still widespread, even though it wasn't really uh, formally driven by the state. 
The Bible has a lot of good teaching in general in terms of uh, the Christian submission to government authority and government authority in general. In terms of the government authority, it says, the, uh, it says in the Bible that the authority is given by God. The authority is given by God. So here we're just trying to understand what is authority, government authority, and how do we as Christians understand it? Well, the Bible says that authority is from God. It's God himself who places rulers and authorities into their positions, and it's he who brings them down. So Paul, the apostle, says in the book of Romans chapter 13, there is no authority except from God. And given that's the case, he goes on to say, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. Uh, He's really clear there. And keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to a government that killed Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to a government, about a government, that will go on to kill Christians and who had already killed Christians. Now, in terms of the role of government... Earthly government is not to define what is good or bad. Earthly government is not to define what is good or bad. Government is to uphold what God has already determined to be good and bad. And so where the government goes astray and seeks to define or redefine what God has already defined, well, friends, judgment is upon them. That's really clear. And so they are responsible to uphold the purposes of God. uh, Paul, he says also in Romans that the government is a servant for your good. A servant for your good. They're supposed to uphold the purposes of God. Peter's aim is that these Christians, even in the midst of suffering, be good citizens. That they just be good citizens. Submitting and obeying to those in authority over them. Right? That's what the encouragement. In order to be a positive witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be a positive witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, once again here, he's writing about a government that had just killed, crucified the Lord and Savior. Paul says the same thing. He's able to say that they are a servant of good, right? That they might not commit, and and the, the government, sorry, the government might not commit good acts all the time, Their policies might not be uh, good all the time. In fact, they might be evil in some ways. But it's very hard to disagree with the fact that without some form of government, there would be total anarchy, right? That, that, That seems pretty undeniable. Without some form of government, there would be total anarchy. And so in that sense, we can see how the government is a servant of good, even though in some policies and perhaps a lot of policies, they are not upholding what God has determined to be good. Now, it's important to note that as we read this call to submit yourselves to the proper authority, that Christian submission to authority is not unconditional. It is not unconditional. So, for example, if we are required to sin, if the government requires us to set aside what Christ the King has established as good, His rule, His law over the earthly kingdom then we need to side with God. I mean, how is siding with the world or sinning against God a light to the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That's not commending his rule at all. And there are examples of folks in the Bible who actually disobeyed the authorities uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ. So you can take Peter, for example. 
In Acts chapter 4, he's going around preaching the gospel. He gets locked up by the authorities, and the authorities tell him, stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. He says they are charged, right, to not speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. And Acts chapter 4, verse 19 says, but Peter and John answered them to their face. It says there that he, they answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. He's not saying, look, you guys determine what is good and right. He's saying the implication is, look, if you decide there is judgment, he goes on to say, you will have to. No, sorry, he says, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen or heard. It's not going to stop us. You can tell us whatever you want. You can judge whatever you want, but it's not going to stop us from doing what the king has commanded us. He says, you will have to determine if you want to go against God, but we will follow the Lord. You think about the Hebrew midwives in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. This beautiful story, this story of compassion, where Pharaoh at the time was threatened by all of the Hebrew people that had grown up in the kingdom, possible millions, and then he's thinking that they might rise up and overthrow his reign. And so he says, okay, look, you Hebrew midwives, I want you to throw the baby boys into the river that they might die. Right? They're commanded to kill the babies. And do you know what these lowly Hebrew midwives said? Or what the, what the Bible says about them? It says there in Exodus one seventeen, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. It's a beautiful passage there about what it looks like to, cl- to cling to godliness and to live out holy lives for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of God. So let's be clear. Christian submission to authorities is not unconditional, but it ought to be in everything possible. Christian submission to authority is not unconditional, but it ought to be in everything possible. We are people who are going from this land to the next while appreciating and trying to obey our earthly leaders. Again, this doesn't mean that we have to acknowledge that or or claim that they are all good. That's not what's required here. While we seek to obey earthly leaders, we give ultimate allegiance to the one true and only sovereign. So if you're visiting with us and you just so happen to work for the authorities, let me assure you that Christians are not anarchists. Christians are not anarchists. Christians uh, are those who must submit to a rule outside of ourselves. Christians are people who must submit to a rule outside of ourselves. And even we must submit to a rule outside of the majority. For anyone to be a Christian, they must have bowed the knee to Christ the King. They must have embraced the law of grace. We love the authority of Jesus Christ. He is our maker. He knows what's best for us. He loves us, and we, are able to, we ought to be able to recognize and submit to his authority. And it is by Jesus' authority that he commands us here in 1 Peter to be subject to every human institution. So we are not anarchists. Now, what does this mean practically? Uh, you know, recently there have been talks about the government perhaps one day moving to remove... Uh, the church's tax-exempt status or religious institutions altogether, their tax-exempt status. Now, that's a huge deal. 
If they were to do that, then we would have to pay additional taxes. And chances are uh, churches as small as ours uh, would have to fold. Um, but friends, keep in mind, we can lose the building, but the church of Jesus Christ continues on. If we got to meet in houses, that's totally fine. We're going to do that. But, you know, is that a huge deal? Yes. But friends, according to the Bible, Jesus himself says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. There's nothing to fear. The government can tax us all we want to. The church is going to continue going on just as it has been for the last 2000 years. We are to submit to governing authorities, pray for governing authorities, as it says in the word, and recognize that they have been that they have been uh, put in place through the one true sovereign to see his purposes accomplished. This is what the Bible teaches, and friends, this is what our church teaches as well in our statement of faith. Now, some of you guys who have been through membership, maybe you've gone through this, you have indeed gone through this statement, this article, and you've wondered, like, what significance is there? Well, this is the significance. We are not anarchists. This is what the statement of faith says. We believe that civil government is of divine appointment for the interests and good order of human society. And that magistrates are to be prayed for, conscientiously honored, and obeyed. So, friends, our first gear, so to speak, ought to be to respect and submit to authorities. Um, For the gospel of Jesus Christ, for our testimony, for the testimony of conduct. Now, recently, I had a little discussion with the LAPD. As some of you guys know, you know, our car got impounded for an honest mistake. We weren't trying to dodge a fine or dodge a payment. It was Thanksgiving weekend, and it was the day after my sister had gotten married. Um, it was my sister's party, and there were family and friends at her house. And my sister calls me over to her front door. She says, there's a cop looking at your, your van. And so I go out there just, uh, you know, I go out there, and, of course, I assume that nothing's wrong. Um, and I asked the officer, you know, what's going on? You know, is there, is there any way that I can help you? He tells me that your registration is expired and I'm going to have to impound your car, right? We're in West LA and, and, you know, we live all the way out here. I think, you know, there's so, so many different thoughts going through my mind. And I thought, you know, surely he's, gr- he's wrong because we, we've never missed a payment ever. And I just assumed that somebody's stealing the stickers off the plates because, you know, once again, I grew up, I mean, I hung around with some thugs. So I just thought thuggish things were happening. It's very natural. I assume that someone has stolen it, but apparently it really was late, the registration. It really was late, and I didn't know. The, the notices were going to our old address, my dad's old address, so, you know, we really didn't know. Otherwise, we would have paid it. Um, but regardless of how I felt in the moment, I knew that I was wrong and he was right. I knew that I was wrong and he was right. I knew that he was doing his job because I was asking him, I said, hey, is it okay if we just, you know, move the car, we can roll it into my sister's driveway and then we could just leave it there because it's allowed to be on private property. It's not allowed to be on public property as in the street. And he was like, well, this is how we actually uh, make sure that there is that, that people, drivers have registration. So I knew I was wrong. He was right. Like, that's actually a good idea. So you're going you know, to do your job to make sure that the cars on the street have registration. He's just doing his job. And the guy was actually kind about it. So here's a cop, and he's being kind about this. He's not being an unjust cop. He's not wielding his authority against me for my ill. He explained, this is how we ensure that people in L.A. have registration, by impounding cars of people who don't. So after we say bye-bye to the car, I go inside the house, and some of my in-laws are saying, 
uh, they saw, they're like, is the cop still there? Let's go yell at him. It's our right to yell at him. And I was like, no, you know, just chill. Like, it, legit, I was in the wrong here. And they were up in arms. They were like, at least we can make them feel bad. You know, how do you sleep at night impounding people's cars on Thanksgiving weekend? How does your wife sleep at night being married to a traffic cop? Like, literally, that's what they were saying. And these insulting words from folks, they were not Christians. You know, they didn't seem to take into consideration that the guy was just doing his job. Ideally, the cops are there to protect and serve. Ideally, they are. This man seemed to be that. You know, if I could go back and have a longer conversation with the cop and my in-laws who were not Christians, you know, I wish I would have said, or I would have said in front of my family, you know, you really seem to want to serve and protect based on what you said. Thank you. You know, as a police officer, as one who, to some degree, has authority over us, you know, the Bible calls me to submit to the governing authorities where appropriate. And so that's what I want to do right here, right now. And I pray for you because we together in the congregational prayer have prayed for the LAPD. I pray for you that you in your position would uphold what God has determined by striving to keep people safe, no matter their race. No matter their social status, no matter their religious background, I wish I would have said something like that. I would still try to convince them not to tow my car, and I could do that legitimately, uh, respectfully, and also secondarily. My friends, we should be people who strive to honor those in authority over us where appropriate. But again, there is a limit to Christian submission. As our statement of faith says, Christians must subject themselves to government so long, or not our statement of faith, I'll get there, as one person has written, Christians must subject ourselves to the government so long as the government does not require what God condemns, nor condemn what God requires. And those are our two limits. Those are our two limits. If the government requires what God condemns, if the government requires us to sin, we need to stand with God. And then if the government condemns what God positively requires, we stand with God. And it's not because we are anarchists and don't want to acknowledge authority. We just need to, at the end of the day, acknowledge the right authority, the top authority, that is God himself, who in his sovereignty has given us the government and given them the responsibility and weight of upholding his judgments. And where they fail, they too will be judged. This is in our statement of faith. It says here that Christians ought to conscientiously obey and honor magistrates except, quote, except only in things opposed to the will of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only Lord of the conscience and the prince of the kings of the earth. <clears throat> now, I know some of you guys hear this story or hear this command, and it is scary. There are a lot of Christians in the United States who hear this command and it is scary. Maybe you have faced an abuse of governmental authority, as I have. And so the prospect of submitting yourselves to government may be something, frankly, that strikes fear in your hearts. Friend, I want, you to point, I want to point your attention back to why Peter calls you to submit to authorities. If you look there in verse 13, it says, Be subject. Why? It's not because the government always gets it right with every single law. It's not because they are always just or always righteous. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. 
what he holds out to Christians who are suffering, possibly at the hands of the government authorities, friends, was an opportunity to submit once again to the Lord, to honor the Lord. This applies here. It applies to the next section when we look at Christian slaves who are submitting to unjust masters. It continues on to Christian wives who ought to, by the command of God, submit to their non-Christian husbands. How ought they to do that in the face of fear? Christian citizens submit on account of the Lord. He goes on to say Christian slaves are encouraged to walk in the footsteps of the Lord, to endure sorrows even in the face of unjust suffering. Christian wives married to non-Christian husbands are to hope not in their husbands, but in the Lord. Our choosing to submit ourselves to governing authorities is a choosing to honor and trust the Lord. Again, there's a whole bunch of caveats that uh, we could say about these things, and, and we ought to say, and I encourage us to just continue talking about the certain nuances that we need to have as we submit, and even as we protest peacefully, as the government ought to allow and has allowed, largely. Our choosing to submit ourselves to the governing authorities is a choosing to honor and trust the Lord. So remember earlier on, we were called to proclaim the excellencies of God and His salvation. Here we are called to live in the excellencies of God. Though darkness come, we can choose by God's grace for the sake of His gospel to live in the light. This submitting, even in difficult times, is a living in Him by faith. Knowing the fact that he is faithful, that he is good and loving. It's a living in the fact that he alone is Lord of all. Where we live acknowledging that no matter how supreme an emperor may be, or how powerful his governors may be, that they, at the end of the day, are human institutions. You look there, the emphasis there in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse uh, 13, be subject for the Lord's sake, that is our creator's sake, the sovereign's sake, to every human institution that he himself puts in their place. You remember 1 Peter 1.24? All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Friends, it is not man that deserves your fear, but God who is the Lord over all. You look there, verse 17. What do we find in the middle of honor everyone? Love the brotherhood, honor the emperor. Peter says, fear God. It is also a living in the fact that God's children are precious to the Father, isn't it? Not only is it a living, even when it's difficult and even when we fear, it's a living in recognition that the Lord is the Lord. And they're just human institutions, even in oppression. It is also a living, acknowledging the fact that we are chosen and precious to our Father. Remember, just as Christ, the cornerstone, was chosen and precious, so the church built on the cornerstone is precious too. You are precious too, even in the midst of your suffering. Regardless of what governments of the earth may do, God is busy building his people into the spiritual temple built on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And just as Christ is precious in his sight, so are his people. This is how living in the fear of man is transformed into living in the fear of God. It is when we live in the faith 
of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins. Friends, this is real. I might not understand your particular situation. As I mentioned earlier, I I felt that uh, an injustice was done against me. There uh, There was an incident where I was arrested for a bogus and trumped up charge, which was proven later on because they threw it out of court. Um, so when my in-laws, uh, who were Caucasian, were saying, it's my right to yell at them, you know what I thought immediately? I thought, I thought, <laughs> I could once again be going to jail if you yell at them. That's what I was thinking. And so there's a little bit of a fear. Now, I might not understand your situation. It might be a thousand times worse than that. But, but I don't have to live in fear. Friends, you don't have to live in fear even if there are greater injustices done to you. Because we live in the fear of God. We trust that He is building an eternal kingdom where His rule and reign is made known and can be made known. And we, friends, when we live in Christian conduct in front of the governments, in front of people who oppress us, we show them that there is a world that is worth hoping in. And that, friends, is beautiful. They look at that and they say, you are strange. We might not live to see it, but they might look at that and think that is strange. And maybe, by God's grace, they come to believe in our same Lord and Savior. To conclude, before all eyes on us meant fear and loss, but to Christians with a true and lasting hope and eternal inheritance, all eyes on us means greater opportunity to proclaim God's excellencies and to live in them in front of the watching world. We shine for the Lord's sake, living, as verse 16 says, look there, as people who are free, not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christians are people who have been liberated, liberated from the greatest danger, the danger of judgment for our own sin. We are people who have been born again to a life in Christ. And so with our hearts latched on to Jesus Christ, We don't have to indulge in evil. We don't have to plot against government authorities or give give in to anger or fear or revenge. Instead, our obedience can be bold and genuine. And we do this, friends, from a position of true strength. It isn't submission out of weakness. It's submission out of the strength of Jesus Christ because His Lordship is real. And just as God found Him precious, so He finds us precious as well. This is what it looks like to be Christ's servants in this sinful world as we live our lives before the government. And then as we're going to see later on, as we live in unjust suffering, if you are married to a non-Christian, as we hope in the Lord and not in our human earthly uh, spouse, as we live in his power, hoping in a city that is to come. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the beauty of holiness, for the power of holiness, for the power of your spirit that brings it about. We thank you most especially for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In there, there is true hope. In your reign, there is true hope. In your forgiveness and right standing, there is true hope, which comes only through your shed blood. 
Lord, we thank you that you, as we look around here even, as we worship today, that we recognize that you are building a people for your glory. Help us anchor our hearts in your hope, in the hope of Jesus Christ's reign that even now we see taking place in our own hearts and that one day we know will come without a shadow of a doubt. Father, we pray that, especially as we go into... uh, this Christmas season with family gatherings and whatnot, that you would help us shine and be projections of your glory and your love and your righteousness to those who even who those to those who might not understand Christianity and to even those who might mock us. Lord, as your word says that we are to love our enemies. Lord, we pray that you would do this so that many people would come to see Christ attractive, your 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 holiness to be beautiful. And so come to glorify you on the day of visitation. In your name we pray. Amen.